Welcome to the St. Richard's Episcopal Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Rev. Cameron Nations. For more information, please visit strichards.org. So we all wonder, or have wondered from time to time, about prayer. Prayer is one of those subjects along with, like, where is God in the midst of my suffering that gets brought up in a pastor's office most often. In fact, oftentimes those two things are related. Where is God in my suffering often has to do with the fact that maybe you feel like you are praying and praying fervently, and yet you're getting no response or no reply. And so we wonder about prayer. How does it work? Does God hear me? How do I know? How do I even go about praying in the first place? Right? Sometimes people pray in silence. Sometimes people uh, speak to God conversationally. And yes, sometimes we even pray out of books, I've heard. <laughs> books of common prayer, even. <laughs> but like most theological questions, these are not new or unique to our own time. In fact, Christians have been wrestling with this for really forever. And it seems even the disciples wondered about them, prompting one of them in today's gospel to ask Jesus directly, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Now what follows is Luke's account of what we know, of course, as the Lord's Prayer, the most famous Christian prayer of them all. It's one of those prayers that's actually like burrowed into our bones. I mean, if you grow up in church, it never leaves you. One of the most profound, profound experiences is being at the bedside of someone who is getting ready to depart this life and perhaps all of their cognitive faculties left long ago. But the minute you start saying the words, our Father who art in heaven, their mouth begins to move. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things, right? It's like it's in, it's in our very bones as Christians. Now, I say that this is Luke's account of the prayer because, uh, because it is. We, we have two versions of the Lord's Prayer. One is this one. You may have noticed that it sounded a little different, maybe, than what you're familiar with. And that's because oftentimes we quote Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, which comes in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a little bit longer uh, than the the version we see in the Gospel of Luke. And I want to talk about uh, prayer today, not just the Lord's Prayer. Actually, we're not really going to spend much time talking about the Lord's Prayer. I really want to focus on what Jesus says right after the prayer. And we're just going to go through the text this morning uh, because I think there are some profound things that Jesus has to teach us about prayer and how it works in God's place in the midst of prayer. And so, as I said, I don't want to focus so much on the Lord's Prayer itself, although, I mean, one could really spend weeks and weeks just unpacking each line of that. But I want to focus on what Jesus says immediately following. Because part of Jesus's answer when the disciples say, teach us how to pray, part of Jesus' answer is not just to give them this little prayer to pray, but also uh, he gives this little story or illustration. Um, Some New Testament scholars argue that it's a parable uh, that Jesus tells, this little story about uh, the disciple who goes to this man's house in the middle of the night. I kind of don't think it's a parable. I just think it's an illustration because most parables offer comparison 
uh, right? Like the kingdom of heaven is like something, something, something. This is just a thought experiment. Suppose you did this, and he's even referring to the disciples actually when he does this, but we're going to unpack this and talk about what it teaches us about how prayer works, okay? Now, this little parable or story that Jesus tells uh, does have to do with the hospitality codes that I mentioned last week when I preached on the story of Mary and Martha. If you weren't here last week, we read a story uh, in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus goes to um, these sisters' house, Mary and Martha, and uh, Mary sits at Jesus' feet, and Martha is going about busying herself doing other things, and she gets irritated at Mary. Why isn't Mary helping me do this? And as I preached on last week, Martha is actually not in the wrong. Uh, Martha's doing all the right things, because oftentimes it's, uh, you know, it's pitted against, like, don't be a Martha, be a Mary, sit at Jesus' feet. And, and Martha unfairly gets maligned <laughs> in the story. But actually, Martha is just doing what she's supposed to be doing. She is trying to show Jesus hospitality in her home. There were very strong cultural expectations of what you did when a guest arrived, and we see some of that happening in this little story that Jesus tells. Uh, and so let's, let's take a look, okay? So Jesus asks his disciples here to imagine a scenario in which someone has come to visit them, okay? And this visitor has arrived late in the night. Now, Jesus does not say that uh, whether it's because this visitor was unannounced or whether it was due to poor planning on the part of the disciple, but regardless, the disciple in this story has nothing to give the visitor to eat when the visitor arrives. And so the disciple goes to his neighbor's house and knocks on the door to ask for some bread. And we're told that it is midnight. Now, understandably, the neighbor is not thrilled about this, okay? Uh, the neighbor answers from behind the door, the saying that everyone's asleep, the door's already locked, I can't get up and give you anything, he says. So already we see uh, that the, the, the center of the story, the disciple in question, us, we are torn between two obligations here. We're torn between the obligation to, be, uh, to show hospitality to the visitor and the obligation, which still exists to this very day, not to knock on your neighbor's door in the middle of the night looking for flour or whatever, right? Like, it's best to wait till morning. We still, we still feel this intuitively, okay? And so this is what happens. And so he, the, the, the man says, I cannot get up and give you anything. And so then we're left in suspense a little bit. We wonder, will, uh, will we get the bread that we need to show hospitality to this visitor who's arrived in the middle of the night? Well, it's at this point, actually, that things get a little challenging for us because the NRSV, which is a version of scripture that we read from on, on Sundays and which uh, renders a lot of things really, really well um, and does a good job of capturing the, the intention of the Greek uh, that's there in the New Testament, it, it actually, the NRSV really slips up here in its translation of this next verse, which is verse 8, Okay. Uh, which results, I think, in a really misleading interpretation of this little illustration, or I think it can anyway. So in the NRSV, verse 8 reads like this. It says, so right, so this is after uh, the, the man says, I can't give you anything. Uh, the NRSV reads, uh, and this is Jesus speaking, he says, I tell you, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs, okay? At least because of his persistence. 
And I want to focus on this word that gets translated as persistence. I know this is a little bit, we're doing like, we're doing like Sunday school this morning in today's sermon, okay? But I think this is important. So, so this word in the Greek, uh, anidea, uh, which is here translated as persistence, it is not a common word. It's not a common word. Uh, it's really only found in the book of Sirach other than this, and many uh, Christians don't even think that Sirach is you know, part of the canonical scriptural things. It's in the Apocrypha, okay? And it's, it gets translated as persistence, but um, it doesn't really mean that. It doesn't really mean that. And translated this way, uh, as the NRSV translates it, it seems that what's going on here is that Jesus is saying essentially that if you just pester God enough, right? Like if you just bother God enough in the middle of the night with your prayers, he'll eventually get up and give you what you want, right? Like eventually he'll be like, oh, okay, they're not going away. I'm going to get up and I'm going to just get the bread, all right? Just here, take the bread. I've got to go back to sleep, right? And I mean, this is a way that we sometimes think about how God may work when we pray, okay? I'm not saying we don't think this, but that's not really, I think, the most helpful way of viewing this, nor do I think it is really the best way of translating this word. Because as I said, this word doesn't mean persistence, and almost every other biblical translation renders it differently. Now, I say almost, but I say almost only because... I looked at 12 translations, and there technically are more than 12 translations of the New Testament, right? But that's still a lot of translations. And in every single one of them, it is not translated persistence, except for the NRSV, okay? Take the NIV, for instance, right? Very common translation of scripture. Um, you probably have an NIV at home. The NIV translates verse 8 this way. It says, I tell you, remember this is Jesus speaking, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, <laughs> shameless audacity, he will give you as much as you need. That's not persistence. I don't know. It doesn't... Or here's the Common English Bible, which is often uh, Methodists really love the Common English Bible. Um, so this is how the CEB renders it. It says, I assure you, even if he wouldn't get up and help because of his friendship, he will get up and give his friend whatever he needs because of his friend's brashness. Brashness, okay? So, okay, so sure, the disciple in this illustration might be persistent. There is nothing uh, that, that precludes shamelessness and brashness from not including persistence, okay? But I think you see along with me here that persistence doesn't quite capture the fullness of what Jesus is saying in this illustration. Because it is not the mere persistence of behavior that moves this friend to action in the middle of the night, but rather it is the disciple's shamelessness in asking. It is the disciple's boldness in asking, in coming to this friend in the middle of the night in order to provide hospitality for this visitor that moves this friend to action. Because remember, there, there are two things. The, the, the disciple is caught in between these two violations of honor. <laughs> On the one hand, you might violate uh, the honor of the visitor by not being able to offer proper hospitality. On the other hand, you might be violating the honor of the neighbor by waking the neighbor up in the night. And so the calculated risk is, let's wake up the neighbor. Let's do that, okay? 
And so it is. It's shamelessness. It's boldness. I'm going to come back to the word, well, I better come back to the word bold. I hope I remember. I didn't in the last service. Hold me to this. Okay. All right. But boldness, okay? Now, this is a very different meaning with very different theological implications than the one that the NRSV seems to have us consider. Again, it's not pestering God till God relents, but actually it's just being bold and shameless in what we bring to God. It isn't that we bother God with our repetitive prayers until God finally just gets tired of it and gives up. But again, that we should actually approach God boldly without shame, unafraid to break the rules of propriety with God in order that we might uphold what is honorable in our lives and towards other people. This actually, this idea of prayer, of approaching God with boldness and without shame, is one actually that has greater resonance than the pester God until he gives up one. Because if you, as we all do every single Sunday, we read one of the Psalms. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of shamelessness and boldness with which David approaches God in the Psalms, right? He cries out for a variety of things, gets mad at God, angry at God, you know, yells at God. What are you doing? I don't understand. Bold. Be bold. Okay, so anyway, one commentator I read put it this way, that the meaning at the core of this little illustration is that God will act honorably even when we act in ways that bring God dishonor. And he draws this kind of uh, association with the words of the Lord's Prayer, that we um, address God as Father, as a parent, right, as a loving parent. Um, And we say, hallowed be thy name, right, holy be thy name. So we, uh, we approach God with the assumption that God is going to take care of us, though that might not look like what we expect, and I'm about to talk about that in a second, Um, but that what God is going to do is always going to be what restores honor in this situation. Um, So, this does not mean, I got a little ahead of myself there, this does not mean that God will always answer our prayers how we feel they should be answered. And anybody who has been a Christian for more than five minutes knows this is true, right? We have all been in that place where we are praying for something specific and it doesn't quite turn out how we desire. Now, I've preached before on this about how our prayers are not wishes and God isn't a genie, right? We, though we tend to treat God this way sometimes, that we feel like we have a wish to make of God and God will grant it. Uh, nor are prayers uh, opportunities for cashing in our holiness, though I've certainly been in places where I wish they worked that way, where I'm like, now God, I've been really, really good. It's kind of like treating God like Santa Claus, right? I've been really good. I've been to church every week for the last three months. If you could really just do this one thing, you know? If you could just do this one thing. It's like we're pulling up in the drive-through line and God, we're talking into the speaker box, right? We're like, I would like a venti good fortune, please, God. Okay? That would be amazing. Give me this. But we all know this isn't exactly how prayer works. That's not to say that sometimes God doesn't answer prayers in the way that we would hope, but that it doesn't always work that way. Now, instead, I think what this illustration shows us is that prayers are petitions that we make. Uh, And they are petitions that we make with boldness and shamelessness, opening our hearts to God such that God would enter in and transform our wills to align more with his will. Thy will be done, right? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And in this way, prayer is not wish fulfillment. And we see this emphasized with what Jesus says next. So uh, I'm now starting in verse 9. Jesus says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you, he asks, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead? Or if your child asks for an egg, will give them a scorpion? Now you may be saying, well, knock and the door will be opened, ask and, uh, you know, and, and it will be given you. That does sort of sound like wish fulfillment, right? Like, if, well, if I ask and it's given to me, how is that not? Well, I think what we need to do here is to be very attentive not just to what is being said in this passage, but what is not being said here by Jesus. You see, what Jesus does not say is that if your child asks for a fish, you're going to give him a fish. He doesn't say that. What Jesus says is if they ask for a fish, you're not going to give them a snake. Or if they ask for an egg, you won't give them a scorpion. Now, parents intuitively probably know what's going on here because your child probably has asked you for fish, and you say, that's not what we're having for dinner tonight, right? <laughs> and by a fish, I mean chicken nuggets or whatever, right? <laughs> and, and you're like, well, we're having tacos, okay? And so tacos is what they're getting, <laughs> even though they want the chicken nuggets. This is kind of what's going on here, is what Jesus is saying is you're not going to give them something harmful, right? Because you have their best interest at heart, but it may not be the thing that they're wishing for. It may not be the thing that they ultimately desire right then, but it's still okay, right? You're not going to harm them. And so notice how this passage ends. If you then, who are evil, if you then, who live in this fallen world, who need my grace for salvation, if you then, who are evil, know how to give your, your own children good gifts, how much more will the Heavenly Father give? Now look at this. Jesus does not say, again, let's pay attention very closely to what Jesus says. Jesus does not say here, how much more will the Heavenly Father give good gifts even? Notice what Jesus says. We'll give... All right, fine, I'll fill in the blank. We'll give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. It's not, if you pray for the parking space, the parking space is there, although sometimes it is, and then you feel like it's reinforced... <laughs> <laughs> what, that, that idea, right? But it's that seek and you will find, but what you will find is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Now, I often say, and I've said before, I will say again, that we don't know, and frankly, I believe that we physically cannot know the mind of God. We cannot know that. His ways are higher than our ways, right? We can't know the mind of God, but we can and do know the heart of God. We know the heart of God. And the heart of God is with us. God with us. Emmanuel. 
I think back to Pentecost Sunday, right? And what is promised to us? What is promised to us is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with us, both then and now. And the Holy Spirit surprises us, right? And so when we pray, God does hear us. When we knock, the door does open. When we seek, we do find. But what might be on the other side of the door might not always be what we expect. Now that's supposed to be where it ends, but I realized just now that I meant to go back to boldness. And nobody reminded me, but the Holy Spirit did just now. And so let's remember that nice cliffhanger ending I gave, and I'm going to finish up by talking about boldness. Note the language uh, in, in just a little bit when we celebrate the Eucharist together. We will pray the Lord's Prayer, as we always do. But note, note what is said to invite everyone to pray. Okay, note what is said by the celebrant to invite everyone to pray that prayer. And that's where I'm going to end for today, is on that cliffhanger. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. For service times or more information on St. Richard's, please visit strichards.org.